From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, the COVID-19 back-to-school dilemma. The more information you have, the more sort of complex and confusing it is. And holding all these issues sort of together with health and safety um, and thinking about vulnerable populations and thinking about the economics makes the school decision really challenging. I know there are parents out there who are saying teachers don't want to go back to school and they're being very selfish. And it makes me very sad, you know, but I'm a person too. Just wondering how elementary kids are going to wear masks or social distance. We'll hear from parents, educators, a doctor who helped shape back-to-school guidelines, and a school board member in Douglas County shares her district's struggles in almost real time. Today, COVID-19 and the classroom. The virus has put families and educators and educators with families between a rock and a hard place. so eager to get back into the classroom with my kids. At the same time, I'm scared to death. People keep saying we have the option, but as a single parent, do I really have an option? If I want to continue to keep food on the table, I have to go to work. And so for me, it's like I have no other option but to send my son to school. I do not want to go back to school. I am writing my will, and I feel sick to my stomach just saying that I can't fathom being in front of my kids. I can't fathom trying to teach them because statistically, some of us will get infected, we'll have to go to the hospital, and some of us may die. And I can't imagine trying to teach or learn in a classroom where I know that death is a possible side effect. What about the teachers? What about the older teachers? I'm not a kid anymore. We've had a lot of sick people around us, and I've seen what it's done to them. And so... Yeah, I think that was the moment for me where I was like, I don't think it's worth the risk. I think we'll do our best with what we have right now. Logistically, how do we cover infected staff? This past year, we were in a substitute shortage. Substitutes are often retired educators and with their advanced age have higher risk. Am I doing the right thing? Am I valuing my career over my children's life? And that's dark. And it's hard because I know I've worked hard to get to where I am, and I don't know what to do. Those are some of the hundreds of Coloradans who reached out to us with their views as we put today's special together. If a pattern emerged, it's that people are both torn and terrified. A note that Colorado has around 180 school districts, and each is making its own decision. I'm Ryan Warner. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. And this hour, perspective from Douglas County, which held a marathon school board meeting over the weekend to hammer out its plan. We'll have insight from a leading pediatrician. But first, let's hear in greater depth from two parents and a teacher. Tina Carroll's son, Chase, is getting ready for first grade. Natalie Perez's son, Roman, is entering fourth grade. He just celebrated his ninth birthday on Sunday. And as it happens, these boys attend the same school in West Denver. Tina, Natalie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Maria Volker teaches Spanish and social studies at Highlands Ranch High in Douglas County. 
just an illustration of how quickly things are moving. The Doug Coe School Board met for nine hours over the weekend. Volker now has a much better idea than she did a few days ago of what her school year will look like. Maria, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start with what each of you plan to do when school begins in a few weeks. So, Tina, DPS will start with remote learning August 24th and open its classrooms September 8th at the earliest. Assuming classes open, will your son Chase go back? Yes, he will be going back. Okay. Now, you you seem to answer that without any hesitation. What are the forces that mean you're putting him back in the classroom when that's possible? You know, I really just don't have a choice. Um, I'm an essential employee, and I report to work every single day, um, geared up and ready to go. And so as a full-time, single working parent, um, my only option is to send my child back to school. Now, there will be a period where that's not possible because DPS is opening remotely. What are you going to do? Well, I have reached out to family and tried to scrape up money to fly people out here to assist me as um, I try to put a plan in place to take my son back to school. Has anyone, that time. has anyone taken you up on this opportunity to fly out and help you with childcare? Not yet, but um, I am... Trying to incentivize as much as I can. This is the ultimate illustration of the fact that it takes a village sometimes to raise a child. Natalie, there is also the option in Denver of 100% virtual learning, and this is true in many districts across the state. What's it going to be for Roman, the classroom or online? So, yeah, he will be staying home, and we will be doing the full-time virtual how did you come to that decision? Help us understand the forces in your life. Um, well, I feel like I'm very privileged to have a job where I can take as much time off as I need um, to be home with my kid. He also has some underlying health conditions. And I just felt it's best right now to keep him home. You say you have the privilege to be able to do so. I understand that you own a small Mexican restaurant. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. So that, I don't think of running a restaurant as by any means an easy job. Uh, Can you paint us a picture of how you think you'll juggle his studies remotely and running a restaurant and I think a food truck too? Um, Yeah. Well, my husband helps out a lot. So he would be the one taking over. I would just come weekends when it's really busy and maybe like twice a week. And I would bring Roman with me. We have a room there where he he has his quiet time and he can focus on the learning. I can also take my time to come in and check and see if he needs anything. And and you say that uh, Roman's health has a lot to do with this decision. Just say a few more words about that. Um, so as a baby, he had to have a couple surgeries and right now we are trying to figure out if he has asthma over the winter, he had to have a lot of nebulizing treatment. So also we don't have health insurance or anything like that. So everything goes out of my pocket. Mm. 
And so, so the, the if, costs could be enormous if he gets yes. sick or if you get sick. So I'm wondering, uh, Tina Carroll, how you're thinking about Chase's health and your own health if you're exposed to COVID-19. Should he be? Um, You know, that is a looming thought that crosses my mind every single day. Um, but unfortunately, my livelihood takes precedent. And I hate to say that. And again, it is terrifying to think that way. But um, right now, you know, I think about my health as I go to work every day and then sending Chase back to school. I mean, he's going to be in a hard place, but I really just don't have an option. I just want to say that you're in charge of housing and dining services at a local university. Okay, Maria Volker, a teacher in Douglas County. Your school board approved two options over the weekend. The first is called a hybrid plan, and the goal is to cut class sizes in half at least. So one group of students will be in school two days a week, and then like the other half of the student body, a different two days. And that leaves everybody doing online learning three days a week. And okay, so that's the hybrid plan. The other option is that families can choose 100% online learning. I am curious, Maria, will it be the classroom for you or teaching online? For me, it is the classroom. The connection that I share with the kids to me is very, very important. And I am comfortable with all of the precautions that the district has put forth for teachers and students in the classroom. If we have to go to online because the cases spike, we, we will. And we you're, don't know the future. You're confident that the district is tracking that to an extent that your health is being safeguarded? I'm very confident in my school board. I, I truly am. I'm very proud of them. They listened to a lot of input and they made, in my opinion, the best decision possible. I do understand parents that have to work. And I think that society itself is going to have to change because this is not going away in the next week. What do you mean society is going to have to change? Say a few more words about that. I think perhaps employers should have to rethink the work environment for their employees. Um, I do believe that there are family co-ops that are springing up in Douglas County, and I'm sure in other districts as well, where families are getting together and coming up with a plan. Parents that work different hours are taking small groups of kids that usually have the same schedule at school. We need to start thinking out of the box. This is not business as usual. I do want to note that some teachers don't want to go back to their buildings and can apply to teach online. That's an option. Uh, Now, just a few days ago, when we first reached out to you, you were really on the fence, very concerned about safety. Uh, That was before the board met. Uh, That concern is shared by many of the teachers who reached out to us. One educator in Denver, for instance, sent us this note Sunday. Quote, I'm a teacher. I'm terrified. I was excited to get back into the classroom until I started thinking about the health risks. Anyone who thinks elementary students will maintain social distancing and wear masks all day has never met a real elementary student. Our school lacks the staff to clean the classrooms in the best of times, much less regularly disinfect. And just for some context, the state's largest teachers union surveyed 10,000 members, eight out of 10 said they were willing to join their colleagues in refusing to return to work if safety conditions they outlined 
weren't met. Just over half said they'd prefer full remote learning. Have you heard similar things from your colleagues, that kind of trepidation? I have. After Saturday's meeting, a lot of that has calmed down. There are teachers that are going to total remote learning, and they're wonderful at it. They, they really are. E-learning can be very effective when implemented correctly. In the spring, we had absolutely no time to implement anything. This time, teachers have been trained over the summer, and they're still doing a lot of training, and they will be very good. I'm comfortable going back right now. It's the same comfort level that I go to the grocery store. I have to do something. I have to make money. I have to pay my mortgage. I feel comfortable doing it this way. And I'm not going out any other way. I'm not going to the malls, and I'm not going to Costco's, and I'm not going to restaurants. So I'm hoping that by protecting myself as best as possible and limiting my exposure, this will be successful. Okay. In just a bit, I'm going to ask you about some of the safety precautions you'll be taking and that the district is taking that make you feel comfortable. This is COVID-19 and the Classroom from Colorado Matters. My name is Rebecca Johnson. I am a Denver resident and Denver Public Schools teacher. I teach high school special education for students with severe disabilities. And I think that's a group of people being left out of the conversation. Going back to school is going to look a lot differently. For my classroom, my students, wearing masks is going to look differently. Being able to socially distance. Um, and my biggest thought on all of it is that I think we should be going back to school based on need. Who needs to be in the building? It's not 100% efficient. This is CPR News. CPR is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now, telling the truth of the story without hype or compromise. This vital news coverage is made possible through community support. If you're already a CPR member, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. If you're in a position to make a gift or to increase your giving, help keep CPR strong at CPR.org. This is COVID-19 and the Classroom, a special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get back to our discussion in this part of the program with two parents and a teacher. I want to jump right back in with Maria Volker, who teaches high school Spanish and social studies in Douglas County. And uh, Maria, paint a picture for me of what you think your classroom will look like upon reopening. What sorts of safety precautions will you be adding or taking? The desks will be facing um, all the fr- in the front, and I usually had them in small groups, but that's not possible. They will be spaced at least three feet apart. The teacher, myself, will be six feet away from the students. I will be wearing a mask like they will. Uh, the district is also providing a shield, which I shall also be wearing. I think I'm going to request a microphone so that the kids can hear me clearly, and Although it sounds funny, someone gave me the idea. I bought a shower curtain liner, clear, and I'll be putting it around my desk so that the common items that are shared in the classroom are kept away from me. 
I will be sending out an email to all of my students' parents saying I it's not required, but I certainly encourage you all to have personal items for your child. For example, small staplers, enough pens and paper, uh, pens, that sort of thing. And I'm not going to be able to sit with the kids the way I usually do. What happens if a fight breaks out? That usually does not happen. But if it does, then I will have to get involved, as I have in the past. It, that, that's not an option. That's the safety of the kids. That's mm. a whole different ballgame. What scenarios have you run through in your mind as a teacher? Uh, for instance, if it turns out that a student tests positive for COVID-19 or there's a potential exposure, just share more of your thinking with us. My concern is that if the whole cohort has to go into quarantine um, at home, I, I, I know that we have 80 hours from the federal government to cover our time, but if it continues to happen, who's going to be covering my time? I'm concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm concerned. Another concern that I have is, heaven forbid, if we have another situation like a school shooter like we had in STEM last year. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, the safety of the kids come first. Absolutely. But it's just something that we need to think about. A little later in this hour, we will hear from a Douglas County school board member who was part of that marathon meeting over the weekend trying to hammer out these details. Let's get back as well to our parents, Tina Carroll and her first grader, Chase. Tina is going to put him in school when DPS reopens classrooms. Natalie Perez has a fourth grader named Roman, and he will not be in school for a mix of reasons. And uh, Natalie, talk to me a little bit more about how school went for Roman in those months when the pandemic first hit and he had to do remote learning. What was the quality of his education, do you think? Um, we struggled a lot in the beginning. He didn't understand what was going on. Um, everything was really new to us. Um, usually with homework, he already knows what he has to do. So he comes home, he does homework and he rarely needs help. But during the virtual learning, um, there was times where I had to teach him something, for example, math. And I had never learned math the way he's learning it right now. So that was a struggle. Um, the online, the online, he did great on that. He was the only kid who completed his whole course and that went great. He learned a lot through that. And at first I was like, oh my God, I don't think he's learning anything. And I was frustrated and I was scared that I was failing him by not providing everything he needed, Hmm. but he, he did great. And I don't know. I feel confident that we'll be okay during this time and just hoping this comes to an end soon and we can return to our normal life. Tina Carroll, what thought have you given about the staff that will be in the classroom um, and how your decision affects them, for instance? Um, it just makes me feel like I have to be the best citizen possible. I have to follow all of the 
precautions as well, make, making sure that my son has a routine down pack, make sure that he understands, you know, what it means to properly sanitize, what it means. I've been like creatively thinking about ways to keep his mask on, t- attaching a lanyard to his mask so it doesn't hit the ground, like just trying to think outside of the box to make sure that we're being model citizens so that we keep our teachers safe as well so that we stay in school as long as possible. Ah, That's a fascinating point. And Maria Volker, do you have faith that the families of the kids who will be in your classroom are going to be as fastidious as Tina Carroll? You know, in Douglas County, there's been a lot of debate about mask wearing. The parents that have reached out to me are very supportive. It is going to be difficult. But with high schoolers, they can always decorate the mask and it becomes more of a joke and there's levity to it. So I I do believe that my kids will follow the rules as much as possible. There's always going to be one. But parents are generally very supportive. Do you worry about the teens themselves? Yes, I do. I do because I'm seeing cases where 11 and 12 years and above apparently transmit it more easily. I'm seeing that that total organ failure syndrome has taken hold, and we have several kids in Colorado with that. Yes, I am concerned. I am concerned. And that's why for their safety and my safety, we need to do the right thing, which is keep our mask on. We need to social distance. We, we need to use common sense. We're all in this together. This I'm, is not a, a school thing. It's not a community thing. We're all in this together. We need to come together and help each other. It's Maria Volker. She teaches Spanish and social studies at Highlands Ranch High School in Douglas County. We also heard from Natalie Perez and Tina Carroll. Their kids attend the same Denver public school, but they've come to different decisions about in-person learning. This is COVID-19 in the Classroom from Colorado Matters. My name is Julie Vincelette. I am an elementary art teacher. I live in Centennial, Colorado, and I have very mixed feelings about school. I would love nothing more than to be back in my classroom teaching and making art with my students. It brings so much joy to me and to them. But I am very nervous about the idea that I see all of the children in the whole school and how that is going to work. A classroom teacher is a little bit different because they have a smaller cohort of students. And then the idea of Does everyone have their own supplies? Do they share supplies? And so how do those get cleaned? Typically, over the course of three days, the entire school rotates through my room, and I see a third of the school every day. We've had a medical expert and a high-ranking education official listening into the program so far. So why don't we address some of the concerns we've heard from parents and educators. Dr. Sean O'Leary is a professor of pediatrics at CU Anschutz. He helped write back-to-school recommendations for the American Academy of Pediatrics. He also recently testified on this subject before a congressional committee. Doctor, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. And Colorado's Commissioner of Education is Katie Anthes. Her department recently issued its own set of guidelines. I'll point out that that those guidelines aren't binding. Colorado's 178 school districts are independent. They're each charting their own course in this. Hi, Katie. Hello. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And I wonder if each of you would reflect on something you heard in the previous conversation, something that stood out. Doctor? Yeah, you know, one of the things that that has become very clear is just the um, teachers are very nervous, and I completely understand. Terrified that. is the word, we right? Right, and you know, I, I think you know, I I feel for them. I I really understand uh, where they're coming from. It's a scary time, um, and you know, as I as I was thinking about it, you know, they're getting you know, some are getting accused of of being selfish. They're not being selfish. They're they're being human and. Teachers, you know, like pediatricians, they devote their careers to the betterment of children. So they really need our support. And so I think we need to keep that in mind as we go forward in these conversations. What does that mean, support? Well, I think they need to be at the table as we're planning this, uh, and as we're as we're planning return to school. And I also think they need funding. That was the reason I was testifying before Congress uh, last week. Uh, Education leaders have asked for two hundred billion dollars to be able to allow schools to reopen safely. And so teachers uh, right now are being asked to do more with less. And so they need our our support both in terms of the planning process as well as funding. Katie Anthes, what stands out from what you've heard so far from parents and teachers? Yeah, I think I really agree with what the doctor said. You know, we've been hearing the anxiety and the fear rise with our teachers and our educators over the last, you know, three to four weeks as we've seen cases increase. And absolutely, um, you know, understand that. And so what we're trying to do at the state level um, with our expert partners, um, with doctors and and experts, is provide guidance and a a layered approach to safety precautions. Um, What does that mean, a layered approach? Well, it means that um, the more strategies we can use and the more safety protocols we can use in schools, the the smaller the risk is. So run, run through a few of those. Sure. So using masks, um, especially for our older um, students, uh, creating social distancing, uh, creating cohorts of students that might be smaller um, groups of students um, that stick together throughout the school so they're not, um, you know, intermingling with other cohorts. How do cohorts work in uh, high school? I, I was just thinking about the fact that I used to go from French to, you know, geography to w- whatever it was, math. I think I had a harder time. In yeah. But, um, how does that work in a high school? Yeah. Well, I, I think that is um, some of the huge logistical challenges that our districts are facing. It is incredibly hard, especially if you have a huge comprehensive high school. So our schools and our superintendents and our district personnel are working really hard to figure out and really have to make some big changes like block scheduling or uh, maybe moving to a quarter system so that you're not moving from class to class um, as often. Are you seeing that? 
Uh, we are seeing that. Some some districts are thinking about um, changing in those directions, and I think we're going to see more of it. You know, districts have been having sort of a plan A, B, and C so that they can pivot depending on what the virus um, looks like in their community. I'm glad you mentioned that. I just today got the plan from Pueblo 70, the school district uh, in the southern part of the state. And they have all of these different pathways, doctor, based in part on what the virus is doing in their community. So it's hybrid learning when transmission of COVID-19 in the local community drops below 4%. And then if transmission of COVID-19 drops below 2%, they can go to in-person. How closely should districts be watching the virus in their communities? What should the threshold be? Say a few words about that. Yeah, that that's a really important question. It, it really all comes down to what the epidemiology is. And, you know, if the virus is really circulating widely, I don't think it, it's reasonable to have schools open for full in-person learning because it's inevitable that there will be outbreaks within the schools just from people bringing it in from elsewhere. Uh, even if there's not much transmission within the school, they're going to get it outside within the, in, the, in the surrounding community. So I think absolutely these are local decisions based on what's going on. In, in terms of the actual metrics, there are a number of things that are being tracked uh, at, at state by state and local public health. And uh, the percent percent positivity, I think, is what you were referring to is one of the one of several uh, uh, metrics that are being used to make these decisions. Is that a metric that a parent should be watching or should a parent just trust that the district is doing so? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I have been encouraging parents to follow what's going on with the epidemiology so they can understand how these decisions are being made. The CDPHE website is actually very robust in terms of the data that are shared. So you can look and see uh, the data on a daily basis, how things are changing and the percent positivity. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, is worth following is the modeling. Colorado School of Public Health has been working with our state health department to model what's going to be what's happening. And I, I raise that because Colorado has actually done pretty well overall with this compared to a lot of other states. But our modeling has, has, has reason for concern in the, next, in the next several months. Several months. Katie, do you expect there to be a lot of teacher turnover in the year to come? I mean, we've mentioned that some districts are offering teachers the ability to teach online mm-hmm. if they don't feel comfortable coming into the classroom. But... Are there teachers who are simply up a creek here? You know, I I think we're seeing this in in all areas of our world and our life right now is, you know, we're all evaluating risk um, based on our own personal choices, based on where we live and based on the types of jobs we have. I I am fearful that we're going to lose some teachers over this in terms of retirements, early retirements, or just choosing, as you've heard from many of your listeners, um, that that they're too fearful or nervous to go back to school. And And there aren't other options for them in that district. Right. And I know that our superintendents are doing everything they can to find other options, but it does become a logistical challenge if you have 
too many um, teachers that are requesting remote and not enough remote slots. So it's certainly a challenge. And I, I think we're all working on this sort of adaptable problem that we have now, which means we have to be flexible and adapt and evaluate risk moment by moment to make good personal choices. It is also true that teachers willing to go into classrooms could end up becoming sick. And then you have the question of the substitute teacher core, which my understanding skews older. And those are folks who might be even more reluctant to go into a classroom. Do do you have concerns that even for the remote, uh, pardon me, for the in-person learning, which will be minimized, there will be enough educators? I do have concerns with that. You know, we were in a teacher shortage actually before COVID hit. Good to know. So, um, so I, I certainly am not going to sugarcoat it and say that I don't have concerns. There are definitely concerns with the number of substitutes we have, and this this again gets us back to the incredible complexity of this challenge. That even if our districts do everything right to uh, layer precautions, have have all of these safety approaches, cohort their students. Uh, you know, if if there is a confirmed case um, and they need to find a sub or they need to figure out all of these other logistics, it adds a whole new layer of complexity. If there is a confirmed case, if there is a possible exposure, I spent my weekend trying to think about what the ripple effects of that would be through a school community or even one cohort for that matter. What would that look like? I mean, doctor, I, I picture, let's say... A classroom of, I mean, what are, what are you seeing on average entering this school year for in-person? In Douglas County, they wanted it to be about half. Yeah, you know, it, it totally depends also on the age of the children yeah. because we, we have found through our work with experts that um, younger children are not spreaders as much. Um, and so those those class sizes can be a little bit larger, larger, but it's really going to depend based on how big the classrooms are, what the buildings look like, what the ventilation is, all of those things. So I, I hesitate to, to say a number because yeah. teachers, I think, are very aware of their class sizes, and I don't want to underestimate them. But let's imagine that there's an exposure in a cohort. What are the ripple effects, Doctor? Yeah, so I think we have to remember that that you know COVID is spreading, right? It's we're seeing it in the community, and it's already there. And so it is inevitable that there will be cases if schools are in person. Um, Let me just underscore that it is inevitable. Correct. We have to expect that it's going to happen and we have to plan for that. And, and also, I would say we, we don't want to panic about that. Um, remember that the, the mitigation measures in place are there um, both to keep the virus from getting into the school, but also to keep it from spreading within the school. And we also know a lot more now than we did when this pandemic hit about what works. So we do know that masks are very effective. So for example, if students are spread out a minimum of three feet, ideally six feet within schools and they're wearing masks and there's a case in a classroom, in a cohort, it's very likely that no one else in that cohort is going to get sick. On the other hand, if they are, uh, if, if, you know, those measures aren't being followed, then there's there's re- more reason for concern there. Okay, I saw a meme. And the meme said, if you think that a kid isn't going to lick their finger and chase another kid and say, you have COVID now, you haven't met kids. <laughs> D- don't, don't all these assumptions uh, base themselves on the idea of like kids on their best behavior? 
Well, so yeah, I, I, I have heard that concern that, that, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to get everyone to do this 100% of the time. And that's absolutely true. Uh-huh. But if we can get, get the majority of students following the proper procedures the majority of time, that is still going to lower the risk. So we also, we're not, we have to remember, we're not going to completely eliminate the risk, but we can greatly lower the risk. And if the degree of transmission within the community is very low, then we're in pretty good shape, I think, in terms of being able to contain these these potential exposures. We heard Katie mention that for younger kids, uh, they are less susceptible to COVID-19 and to its uh, worse effects and, and potentially to spreading it. Can you shed some medical light on that? Yeah. So we're, we're learning more about this virus every day. So what I tell you today may turn out not to be true tomorrow. but Or this afternoon. It, or this afternoon. But it does appear that younger children, particularly 10 and under, appear to be both less likely to catch the virus and less likely to spread the virus, both to each other and to adults. Not to say that they don't get it, not to say that they can't spread it, but they are, are significantly less likely, at least based on what we know today. Katie Anthes, we heard the doctor mention uh, his testimony before Congress to make sure that there's ample funding for what I imagine is the PPE of education. Uh, what is that? Hand sanitizer? <laughs> what? Backup masks? Yeah. If a kid mask breaks at school. Walk us through that and tell us sure. if there's enough. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think I think just like we have here in the studio, we have our wipes and our masks and uh, hand sanitizer. Those are all going to be important things. Um, some of our districts are are putting up, um, you know, plastic barriers, maybe in in high traffic areas. Um, we know that our governor has generously um, pledged. Uh, K95 masks for every educator for at least the first um, eight weeks of school. And we're working on the logistics of getting those out to our school districts now. Um, and so, uh, you know, those those are all important things. We also, um, though funding is uh, an incredibly important piece and, and something we need to um, keep thinking about, um, we did, the governor did uh, allocate $510 million to schools, um, which is sort of, you know, immediate term funding for schools to buy PPE, buy those extra masks, make sure that they have the cleaning supplies um, and that they can do maintenance on their ventilation systems and other things to um, be, be as safe as possible. I'm glad you mentioned ven- ventilation. You know, air handling is very important. I also think about what was true before the pandemic, which is that we had some school buildings in pretty bad disrepair, certainly that had not been updated. And that's an issue here, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I, I think that also goes to um, the need to have some some of these local plans and local approaches because we know every school building is different. Every, um, you know, the space in buildings are different, whether they have windows that work are different. Um, so we're um, following the safety guidance also on, you know, more ventilation is better. If you can open windows, do that. Um, we do have some buildings that, that aren't in the highest repair. So I think that needs to be taken into consideration for the local districts as they plan 
uh, do as much maintenance as they can with those extra funds um, and have as much ventilation, uh, even outdoor learning or windows open, those sorts of things. Sean, the American Academy of Pediatrics report that you helped write really does favor a return to in-person learning when possible, when the virus is at bay. Why? Yeah. Uh, So I do want to emphasize that when the virus is at bay, because a lot of the public perception or the media perception anyway was, you know, in-person learning under all circumstances. Mm. And I just want to say, you speak to this as someone who's had COVID-19, by the way. That's, uh, yeah, that's correct. So um, in terms of why in-person learning matters, one, we know that that learning is better in person. Um, you know, we will do our best if that's what we're we're stuck with this year with the the, the online models and the hybrid models. But in person, lear- children learn better in school. The other issues, of course, there's a lot of social interaction that happens at school, emotional health, um, physical activity. Many kids uh, get their the bulk of their nutrition from school. So there are many many aspects of children being in school that that go beyond simply the learning uh, that happens there. So lots of many, many reasons for kids to be in school. Also, we have to remember, you know, how are our most vulnerable uh, impacted in all of this? Uh, those living in poverty, uh, children with special health care needs who really benefit greatly from being physically present in school, really uh, complicated things to figure out, but things we really have to address. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. How, how are you feeling, by the way, doctor? You know, uh, <laughs> I don't know how, how long we have, but I'm doing okay. It's, I, I got sick in March. My wife and I both did. And I'm one of that small percentage that continues to sort of have off and on symptoms uh, months later. So it's, it's been kind of frustrating, but I'm, I'm doing okay. I appreciate your time. Sean O'Leary, professor of pediatrics at the CU School of Medicine, specializes in infectious diseases. He's an author of the American Academy of Pediatrics report on reopening schools. And Katie Anthes, Colorado's education commissioner, thanks as well. We'll be right back with COVID-19 in the classroom. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. As we've been hearing, Colorado's 178 school districts are taking different approaches to reopening classrooms. As those approaches are still taking shape, it's hard to say exactly where every district is landing. On the Western Slope, for example, Mesa County Valley School District 51 will discuss its plans with families tomorrow. There, the superintendent says, quote, We're working hard to provide 100% in-person learning at all of our school sites in a safe and responsible manner. They'll offer the remote option, too. Meanwhile, as we've mentioned earlier, Douglas County is going with a hybrid model. Susan Meek sits on the Doug Coast School Board. She spent nine hours Saturday helping shape their plan, which was approved unanimously. Susan, welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. What's the state of the virus in Douglas County, and how is that informing your decision-making? Sure. So it's 
It's rapidly changing, which is really one of the reasons that makes this decision so challenging. Um, actually, Douglas County is among one of the 15 counties that the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment recently warned that we were at risk of losing our variants. Um, that was based to uh, an increase. Uh, there are three different factors that we really are trying to take a look at okay. to help guide our um, COVID safety guidelines. Um, those are around um, hospitalization, the positivity rate that I mentioned, and the 14-day incidence rate. So those are three different rates that our executive director of our local health agency has recommended that we take into consideration. How often will you be monitoring those? Is that an hourly thing, a daily thing? And will you be making decisions uh, immediately after seeing data? Like, tell me how that works as a school board member. Well, you know, I think we are living in an environment where we really need to be monitoring constantly and reevaluating constantly. The uh, plan that we approved actually is similar in how you describe the Pueblo 70 plan mm. in that we have uh, COVID risk um, indicators, which um, dictate the different stages that we would, or options that we would have for our students. So those families that are choosing the in-person learning, um, really depending on what the COVID risk level is, um, that would look like hybrid learning based on our current metrics right now, um, but it could flex into full-time five days a week learning if those uh, risk rates warrant that, but it could also flex back into a stay-at-home situation based on, on the, the current health level risk. I, I want to note that you um, have been getting a lot of emails on this subject. Uh, and I imagine that like the feedback we've been getting, people are torn and people are terrified. What are a few of the messages from teachers in Douglas County that have stood out to you? Well, I, I also want to make sure I emphasize I'm, I'm speaking as one board member right now. So I'm yeah. giving you my opinions. Um, okay. And the, from the emails that I have received um, personally, uh, I think we heard from a teacher earlier in the segment uh, giving her perspective. Um, there are about 4,000 teachers in our district, and I would say there's 4,000 different perspectives. We have um, emails that come in with people who are employees who are very fearful, others who say that they feel like they're ready to get back into the classroom. And just like there's 4,000 different perspectives from the employees and the teachers. Um, we have 68,000 students in Douglas County, and they all have unique needs and perspectives. And, you know, I try to remind myself of a metaphor I recently heard about all of us being in the same storm, but that we're all in very different boats. Mm. And I, I think that's what we've been hearing, you know, from parents and teachers based on our health, our, our working environment, our economic status, and basically a myriad of other factors. Um, some of us feel like we're on a raft holding on for dear life while others are on a yacht. And it just depends on what your situation is. And so as a school board member, 
it's really important for us to respect and listen to our communities and our stakeholders and have respect for all of those different needs and feelings. And at the end of the day, you know, we need to make a decision on what we feel is best. Just very briefly, Susan Meek, do you expect a lot of teacher turnover in Douglas County this year as a result of these circumstances? In just a few seconds. Um, I do not expect a lot of teacher turnover. I think we're trying to offer teachers options like we are offering our families options where those um, who want to go full online have an option. Now, the challenge is we really don't know what those numbers are going to shake out and Mm. be. And that is exactly where we are right now is trying to assess Um, in a perfect world. We would have the teachers who choose to teach online matching perfectly with the number of students, right. families who are choosing that option. But right now, it's it's a very uncertain environment. Susan Meek was elected to the Douglas County School Board in November. She's also director of strategic engagement and communications for the Colorado Association of School Boards. Susan, thanks so much for your time. Let's hear another perspective now. Sarah Seha lives in North Denver. She has two kids, a five-year-old daughter who's set to begin kindergarten and an eight-year-old son in third grade. She plans to send them back to school because she has to work. But there's another reason. She says the shift to remote learning has been especially tough on her son. He did not do online as well as I thought he was. In school, he is a straight-A student. He, he's on top of it. He's the head of his class. He knows what he's doing. Online, I think he slacked a little bit more, and he got really frustrated. Um, so he was very, very new to the whole computer, how to even turn it on. So I think he struggled, and he's also like me we're people. (laughs) We love people. We love to be around people. Social interaction is so important for us. And he had bad days. His attitude just got insane, where I was like, I saw him actually hurting, that he missed people, that he missed his friends. Well, tomorrow on the show, tending to kids' mental health. Our guest will be therapist and school social worker Felice Fraser-Solak. She's been counseling students through the pandemic, and she calls the return to school a cauldron of stress that under the current circumstances, it'll be like learning to walk again. So tomorrow, what tools she's teaching kids so they can move forward. And this isn't by any means the end of the discussion. More voices from the school community, including youth, in future programs. I'm Ryan Warner with producer Michelle P. Fulcher. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.